word with you. Just looking forward to our time together uh, in our sessions and being able to see what God has for us. Uh, I wanted just to uh, take a moment just to share a little bit about my family before I jump in. As was mentioned last night, my wife and I had the privilege of serving here for a few years on staff. That was the summers of 2007 through 2010 uh, as program director here and thoroughly enjoyed those years and thoroughly enjoyed the ministry here at IRBC. After we left camp, we went to Colorado, and I was an associate pastor out there, worked with teens for about four years. My oldest two children were born there, and then about seven years ago, went to New Jersey, uh, down halfway between Philadelphia and the shore, and uh, started as an associate pastor, had the chance to uh, step into the senior pastor role when our pastor... uh, left the church and have been doing that for the last three years, enjoyed it a lot. So this is my family. Uh, Anna, I won't make you stand up, but would you just wave? This is my wife, Anna. So as was mentioned, a few former contenders, 2003 contender for my wife, Anna. If any of you were back at IRBC, can't believe how long ago that's been. Reed and Ivy, will you jump up on the, on the, on the pews? Just stand up on your chairs. So this is my oldest two. Reed is 10 and Ivy is 7. You guys can sit down. So I've got a four-year-old named Rowan, and then our littlest, she's only like four days in that picture. Now she's nine months. She's over in the nursery. Her name is Laurel. And we're really enjoying that God has given us these kids and this family. At the end of the month, Anna and I will be married 17 years. I don't know how that happened that fast, but we, we, we enjoy it. And uh, so thankful for what God has given to us. A little bit about myself. Uh, in case if I catch any of you in conversation, I saw a Kansas City Chiefs shirt out there last night, Denver Broncos. If anyone wants to talk about Denver Broncos and how badly the Chiefs have been beating us for years and years and years, we can talk about that if you would like. Uh, Pastor Dave talked to you about his love for running. I have a hate for running, and I try to do it. Uh, two years ago, I got to the point in my life where I realized my life was just dominated by pastoring in a good way. I love pastoring and I love the church, but I needed some balance in my life. So I started two hobbies at the exact same time. The first was smoking uh, meat. Uh, my, thank you. Sorry about that. Got to work on the timing of the pauses. But uh, my, my brother got into it, and he was showing me, and uh, it was Black Friday, found a deal on a smoker, and I, I, I enjoyed that hobby so much that I realized if I didn't start running, we were going to run into trouble real quick. So I started running and, and using the smokers at the same time, and I've been much more dedicated, much more disciplined, much more thorough with the uh, smoking of meat than I have the running, uh, but try to enjoy some of that from time to time. Um, When Pastor Phil asked if I'd be willing to come and speak to you at Family Five, I intended to come last year, and then COVID got in the way of all of that with everything that went on. And so I was thrilled and excited to be able to come and speak to you at Family Five this year and just to open God's Word with you. And the reason is because of the impact that this camp has had on my life, Uh, being able to just My life and my wife's life was transformed through the ministry of this camp. A few people asked when they found out I was from New Jersey, and they said, did you drive or did you fly? And they saw the number of kids we had and couldn't imagine a 20-hour road trip. But I assure you, I would have driven much longer to be able to come and share God's word in a place that, and and in a place and to a people 
that has had such a profound impact in my life. So I count this a real privilege to be able to open God's Word with you and just to look this week at what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we're going to go through the Gospel of Mark in, with my church in Jersey. We just finished the Gospel of Mark last Sunday. And so I've taken a few of these messages and tried to rework them a little bit and we'll hit a few of the high points through the Gospel of Mark and we'll be looking at this question of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so this morning I'm asking you the question, are you in? And as you think about diving deeper and going all in for Christ, the way Mark lays out his Gospel, he's writing about the life of Christ and he wants you, the reader, to see who Jesus is and to see what it looks like to follow him, and you have to make a decision of if you're going to follow Christ. So that's what we're going to do together this week. If you would open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, and I'm going to read the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 1, and then have a word of prayer, and we will try to jump into this together. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and here's what Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our Father, we come to you and we're grateful for what you have done with us in the person of Jesus Christ, what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We're grateful for your word that you have given to us 
and your spirit that causes it to open our eyes to enlighten our hearts. Father, we ask that your spirit would do that this morning, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. Father, that you would bring uh, conviction, encouragement, instruction, training, rebuke. Build us up, Father, by your spirit and through your word, we ask and pray. Um, May your spirit use these words just to encourage hearts. We ask and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On December 5th, 1914, a man named Ernest Shackleton, with a group of men, boarded a ship called the Endurance and set out on a voyage that had been never been completed before in the history of the world. Some of you have read about this, know about this. It's a pretty well-known story. As this voyage, led by Ernest Shackleton, he desired to leave the southernmost tip of an island in South America, and he was going to try to make it across Antarctica. He wanted to make it to the South Pole. It was a very dangerous voyage, and because of the way the ice packed work, there was a very narrow window where he could set sail, and he had to break his way through the ice to get to the mainland. And there was a very narrow window where it would warm up enough that the sheets of ice would begin to break, and they could chop their way through, and they could get to land, and they'd be able to get off the ship and cross across land, make it to the South Pole, and get to the other side. It was extremely dangerous. Nothing like this had ever been done before. And so they leave an island off the coast of South America on December 5th, 1914. They're just a few days off when they begin to enter into the ice pack. And they're breaking their way through, and uh, things did not go as planned. They were only a couple days away from making it to land, And a strong wind came up and pressed all the ice together and froze the ship in place and they were stuck. And they were not stuck for just days. They were stuck for days that turned into weeks, that turned into months, that turned into well over a year. And now they're stuck frozen in floating ice going farther and farther away from their goal destination of the South Pole. And there was nothing they could do to free themselves. They had to get supplies off the ship. They got the lifeboats off the ship and they were just stuck until eventually... The ice crushed the ship, it fell through the surface, and they had nothing but the supplies they could get off. Well, almost a year and a half later, they they got to the point where they had to leave the ice pack, they got in the lifeboats, and they make it to an island called Elephant Island, and they're stuck and stranded on this island until Ernest Shackleton takes himself and three others, and they jump in a lifeboat, and uh, make it some 800 miles back to South Georgia Island, the island they departed from, but they were on the wrong side of the island. It was very cloudy almost all of the 16 days it took them to go the 800 miles. It was very difficult to navigate, something of a miraculous thing that they even made it, but they're on the wrong side of the island. They have to go up and over the mountains, cascades, and through the rivers and waterfalls and Coming down ice glaciers, it was just a miraculous story. When they show up in the whaling station for rescue, they never expected that people would just show up out of nowhere, especially from that direction behind them. They're able to eventually get a ship, go back and rescue all of the men. Not one life was lost. It's a pretty incredible story. The last person that was rescued was August 30th, 1916. So from December 5th of 1914 to August 30th of 1916. It's a crazy story of endurance, of perseverance. And there's a, there's a fabled tale that says when he was building the group of people, when he was hiring the crew that would go with him, that there was a newspaper ad that was put out that said this, men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, 
bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. Who would sign up for a trip like that? Now, there's been doubt cast on whether or not that ad was actually placed in the newspaper. It's probably doubtful that it even was. And yet, these men were sailors and knew the risks involved. And it's certainly a true description of what would, needed, what would be needed for someone to be willing to sign up for that kind of a voyage and be willing to follow Ernest Shackleton into a place no one had gone on such a dangerous journey. Now, I want you to think about this. If you're here this morning and you follow the person of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and even if you're here considering and contemplating whether or not that's true in your life, I don't presume that in a crowd this size, every single person has a born-again relationship with Jesus, or there may be some who think that they have a relationship with Jesus, and they don't actually, or there might be young people here who are contemplating, do I really want the same faith that I'm hearing my parents have in the person of Jesus? And I want you to think, Are you in? Are you willing to dive deeper and go all in for Christ? And as you walk through this week, 1 Corinthians 15, and as Pastor Dave takes you through the morning devotions, and you learn what it means to be steadfast and to be immovable and to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, is that something you're willing to sign up for no matter the cost? Here's the one thing that I want you, if you're taking notes this morning, out of this morning's message, you could write this down, and I think you have a couple blanks you can fill in if you're taking notes notes. Here's the, here's the one thing I want you to grasp. Will you answer the call to follow Jesus no matter the cost? You see, this thing called discipleship, this thing following Jesus, is a very costly calling, and Jesus wants us to understand the high cost of following him. And as Mark writes his gospel, he's writing so that the reader will understand this is who Jesus is. This is what it looks like to follow him, but be Make sure you have your eyes wide open because Mark helps us see that that it's a costly endeavor to follow Jesus. It was costly for Jesus himself. It was costly for Jesus' original disciples. It was costly for John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus. And rest assured, it will be costly for those of us who follow Jesus Christ. Perhaps not to the same degree as others. Certainly not as some of our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church around the world. But there is a high cost to following Jesus. And I want you to think through, do you think Jesus is worth it? Do you think there's any other option than wholehearted commitment to following Jesus Christ? Jesus is not interested in half-hearted followers. Are you willing to follow Jesus Christ no matter the cost? Now let's go through the Gospel of Mark and begin to see how he lays this out. This is some going to be an introduction to the book. And I want you to be thinking about if you're willing to follow Jesus Christ. As, as we go through the Gospel and as you heard the verses that I just read, there's a very interesting note that I want us to stop and think about right here at the beginning. Why did Mark write his Gospel the way he did? You heard me read the verses. Mark starts with John the Baptist, gives just a couple of verses to John the Baptist's ministry. Then he talks about Jesus, and he talks about Jesus' baptism, and he talks about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. For all of the theological significance of what Jesus' temptation in the wilderness means, Mark gives it two verses. We are in verse 16 of chapter 1, and the story switches to the disciples, Jesus' calling of the disciples. 
There's nothing about the birth narrative of Christ. There's nothing about the Christmas story that we think of. Why, and those of you that have read Mark before, you'll, you'll notice in just the verses I read four times, Mark has already said immediately, immediately. He's very fast-paced. He's moving along. Mark was not one of the original disciples, but he was, church history tells us, and church, tr- church tradition tells us, that he was a close associate of Peter, and Peter would have been an eyewitness account, and perhaps Mark saw some of these things, but many of these things... Uh, he's getting from Peter, filling him in on the story of who Jesus was, and Mark decides to write it down. Why? And why did he do it in this way, and why did he move so fast? Um, this is embarrassing to admit. There's a lot of pastors here. I probably shouldn't say something like this, but uh, I'm not sure I would have let the words come out of my mouth, but before I had jumped into this with our church this, the, at the start of the year, Mark was the, the gospel I'd spent the least amount of time in as compared to the others. And I think there was part of me that maybe thought, like I, I wouldn't have said it this way, but young Leslie's just kind of wonder, well, you know, maybe Mark was just, you know, not that experienced at writing a gospel, right? I mean, Mark is probably one of the earliest gospels written. Maybe he did like the first rough draft and then Matthew and Luke come along and, and take his notes and they kind of fill them out a little bit broader and like, good try, Mark. Good attempt. That's, that was great. Um, well, no, it's not that way at all, right? I, one of the things you're going to see Mark was brilliant of the Holy Spirit in the way he arranged the stories and what he wanted us as the readers to catch as we read this and the decisions that it drove us to. In my study, I was very much helped by the writings of a man named Abraham Curavilla. He was a professor until this summer uh, down at Dallas Theological Seminary. And so you'll hear some of his thoughts come out in this and just thankful for uh, his writing and what I want you to catch as we go through this. Mark arranges these stories and he wants you as the reader to be putting yourself in a decision point of whether or not you're going to follow Jesus. And he wants you to catch and see the high cost that's necessary to follow Jesus. And he wants you to come to the conclusion that he has that Jesus is worth it and Jesus is worth following. So look at Mark chapter 1 verse 1 and here's what Mark says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. This is Mark's introduction to the book, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the first and last time that Mark, as the narrator of the story, is going to tell you what he believes about Jesus. He says, this is the beginning of the story, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, one thing you and I have to remember, Jesus Christ, that's not like first name, last name. His first name wasn't Jesus. His last name wasn't Christ. Christ is a title. Jesus was a very common name in the day. He was the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. And Mark is telling you that right here. He's saying, listen, I'm going to tell you the beginning of the story. It's the gospel of good news. And I think he's Jesus the Christ, and he's the Son of God. That's the, 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 that, that designation of the Son of God is the last time you're going to hear such a clear designation through the book of who Jesus was. Such a full confession of Jesus' deity, of Jesus' relationship to the Father, until the Roman centurion in chapter 15 after Christ dies and he's witnessing. And when he sees the way Christ dies, he says, surely this man was the Son of God. Same phrase in the next time it comes up in the book. And so Mark just lays it out. Here's the introduction. This is the beginning of the story story and the readers of the day, this would have caught them. You and I hear that and we say the beginning of the gospel of the story of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And we say, yeah, get that, hear that every day. Well, the readers of the day, their ears would have perked up. 
Because they had heard about gospel, and they had heard about Son of God. These were common phrases, but they would never heard it related to Jesus. Why do I say that? What's taking place? So, Mark was primarily writing to a Roman audience. And throughout Rome, you've got to remember the, the, the cult of personality surrounded in the worship of the emperor. They thought that emperors were divine. They thought they were deity themselves. So Julius Caesar was known as the divine. His son, Octavian, was known as the son of the divine. There were other emperors. This would be Augustus, Tiberius, Nero, other regents who were called... Um, son of God. That was their title. So when an emperor or some other important person, when in connection with their birthday, when they would come into town, when there would be a changing of the guard and a new emperor would ascend to power, they would, they would call out that same word. You saw the word gospel. The original word in verse 1 is euangelion. It means good news. When, when a new emperor would come into power, the people would call out, good news, euangelion, the emperor is coming to town, he's the son of the divine. Well, here Mark says, let me tell you about the real son of the divine, the son of God, good news. And this is the beginning of his story, and you need to pay attention, because unlike your Roman emperor, Mark is going to set Jesus up as a contrast against all other rules and authorities. And he begins his story by talking about John the Baptist. And so he goes to the prophet of Isaiah, and he puts together prophecies of both Isaiah and Malachi, and he says this in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John the Baptist lets us know that through an Old Testament prophet, God himself speaking through the prophets calls John the Baptist. Who was John the Baptist and what was his ministry? Verse 4 tells us he appears in the wilderness. He's kind of a strange guy. He eats some funny stuff, locusts and wild honey, and he's clothed in camel's hair. He doesn't really belong to the normal world of the day. And John's out there in the wilderness, and he's baptizing people, proclaiming repentance. Now, this baptism is different than believer's baptism that we practice today. This is a baptism whereby John was saying, listen, you need to repent. You've all been waiting for the Messiah, and it's getting close. Prepare the way. The Messiah, remember, for hundreds of years, God's people had been waiting for the Messiah, and John shows up on the scene. And what was his job? He was not the light. He was the one who was supposed to bear witness of the light. He was pointing people to Jesus. And, and so these Old Testament prophets tell John who, what his job is to prepare the way for the Lord to make his path straight, and John begins to do this. Now, there's a couple of very interesting things here. John, called by the Old Testament prophets, he has this job of preaching repentance, but did you notice he's in the wilderness? He's out by the river Jordan. So when I went through this with our church, some of our leaders meet regularly, and we make it a practice when we have our meetings just to read through the passage that's going to be preached the next Sunday. And so on the Tuesday, before we started this book, we're going through it, and two of our pastors had been to Israel. I haven't had the chance myself to go there, but one in particular was talking about the purported site of where John was doing his baptisms in the wilderness. His phrase was, it's in the middle of nowhere. 
the, the Jordan River was some 20 miles from Jerusalem, and you had to go down 4,000 feet. So you had to descend steep terrain, and the trip back was even worse. So I want you to think about what John's doing. Why is John in the wilderness baptizing people? What's that all about? Don't think of this as, oh, at the end of the week, the Iowa State Fair is going to be taking place. If any of you go down to something like that, John's not like off on one of the side streets, you know, with this cool sideshow. There's massive crowds of people, and he's like, hey, some of them come over here. That's not what it is, right? It's like get to the middle of Nebraska and keep going even further, right? Not geographically that far, but in terms of just sparse nothing. And the text says all of Judea is out there. All these massive crowds from Jerusalem. Why? Well, what you have to remember, think of it this way. The wilderness motif and the wilderness story that's going to keep coming up in this passage, this is not the first time that God has done something special with his people in the wilderness. Think of God calling his, his people out of slavery in Egypt at the same river in Jordan, the Jordan River. What is it that God does through Joshua as the priests step into the Jordan River, as, 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 as they're going in to claim the promised land? God calls his people out of the wilderness to create a people. And there is a sense in which now here, a greater Joshua, Yeshua, is going to be heralded by John the Baptist. And, he, and God's people are going to come out of the wilderness, and God's going to do something new through the person of Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist's job was, everybody, you need to get on board, you need to repent. The Messiah is coming and God's going to do something very special in and through his ministry. And there's someone coming. I've baptized you with water, but the one that's coming, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. And when he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So that's John the Baptist. Let's look a little bit at Jesus. By the way, in your notes, if you're trying to take notes throughout the week as you see the things that are written there for you, don't think of them as points that I'm going to call out real clearly. Just think of them as some signposts that you can follow along if you want to tie notes. So we covered the one about John the Baptist. Now we're going to go on to Jesus and let's look at this. So in those days, Jesus had come from Nazareth out of Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan, back at the same river. And Jesus gets baptized. Now, Jesus didn't need to repent of his sins, but he's identifying with John and his message and his ministry. And verse 10, when he comes up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So there was the Old Testament prophet voices who called John the Baptist. Now here when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, when he comes up out of the water, the heavens are torn open, and the Spirit descends, and there is the voice of God who says, Behold, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. One of the things that is neat in the way that this verse is written, verse 10, when he comes up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. That word for torn open is not the usual word for the opening of heaven. If you go to back to Isaiah chapter 64, it's in the background. I've got the verse for you on the screen in Isaiah chapter 64. And here is 
the Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah where he's pleading on behalf of God's people and says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that your mountains might quake at your presence. When that Old Testament passage is translated into Greek, the language of the New Testament, that's the same word that Mark chooses to use for the opening of heaven. It, it was ripped open and it was torn open and it's as if heaven itself is breaking into the earthly realm and saying, Jesus is my beloved son. That's what God is saying. And he's pronouncing Jesus' ministry. And, and now Jesus is going to be called himself and sent out into ministry. Look then at verse 14. Sorry, verse 12. Jesus himself is going to have his own wilderness experience. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. That, that idea of the Spirit driving is very, very strong. The Spirit compels Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. That's all we get. Two verses on that. We're not going to go explain what the other Gospels say. We're going to ask this question of what was Mark doing and part of what Mark was helping you to see, all right? John the Baptist came and had a ministry to prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus is now at the start of his ministry, and Mark just says, by the way, behind the scenes, here's what's going on. Jesus is out in the wilderness, and you can almost see two sides of eternal spiritual struggle. There's a real behind-the-scenes spiritual battle where on the one side you've got Satan and probably the wild animals. It could be a neutral term, but it's almost as if Mark is setting it up that way. And on the other side you have Jesus and the angels. And throughout the rest of the book, you're going to see this conflict between good and evil, between Jesus and Satan, between Jesus and evil. And you're going to see it as the book unfolds. And Jesus had to prepare for it in the wilderness. And now that he has been prepared, he starts his ministry. So John the Baptist had a ministry, right, of preaching repentance. What was Jesus' ministry and what is it that he was sent to do? Look at verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here's what happens. Jesus is prepared in the wilderness and now he's given a task where he goes throughout Galilee and what's he doing? He's preaching, repent. The kingdom is at hand. You need to believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus was doing. He's saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. This concept of kingdom, as Mark is trying to help us understand it, don't think so much of it as any geographical or physical manifestation of a long-awaited kingdom, but think of, at this point, what Jesus is saying. He's announcing the reality of another realm. There's another authority. There's another kingdom. And that king of that kingdom was here. What Jesus started at his first advent, we wait for the full realization. We wait for the full physical manifestation of that kingdom. But the king was here and he's now saying, repent. You got to believe in the gospel. And this was Jesus' ministry. And he went and performed wondrous signs and miracles. And what you see Mark doing in just the first few verses, as Jesus is the king, the son of God, he tells a people, he's writing to Romans who were used to the Roman emperor, and Jesus sets himself up as the king of a kingdom who would challenge every other authority. Here's what that means for you and I if we're going to be in. If you're going to dive deeper and go all in and following Christ, Jesus' followers are otherworldly in their allegiances. We have 
We belong as citizens to another kingdom. And I don't know about you, but in a year with so much turmoil, it's comforting to know that our king is above and over every political system, every nation, every ruler, and that's the king we're following. And so we take comfort that our allegiances are otherworldly as we wait for Jesus Christ, as we seek to see what he's accomplishing in the world, and as we seek to spread his gospel. So... You've seen John the Baptist and his calling and his being sent with a message, and now you see Jesus on the scene. He was also prepared. He had his time in the wilderness. He was sent out with a message, and now you see in verse 16, Jesus calls his first disciples. By the way, we've probably already covered the literary introduction from a literary standpoint. Mark's introduction is done at at, at verse 15, or some people think even verse 13, but I want you to see where Mark goes next, because I think it helps tie things together that you saw John the Baptist, now you saw Jesus, let's look what happens with the disciples. Passing along, verse 16, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately... They left their nets, and they followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and he left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servant, and followed him." What happens now? Jesus comes out, and he begins to explain to his disciples Excuse me, Jesus comes onto the scene and he's calling disciples. He comes to the Sea of Galilee and he sees Peter and Andrew and he, he asks them to follow him. And they leave their nets and they follow. And then he comes a little bit further and he sees James and John who were in their met and immediately they leave their father and they follow him. Now, Mark doesn't let us know that this was not the first meeting between Jesus and his, between Jesus and Andrew and Peter. John lets us know that there was another meeting. John, uh, Peter and Andrew were originally disciples of John the Baptist, and John points them to Jesus. And so by this time, now the second time they've met Jesus, when he calls them, they know enough. All right, now he's who we need to follow. And so they do that. Now, as Mark goes on, and we won't see all of these passages, but we'll see some of them, Mark continues to go on, and the disciples themselves will have their own message, their own time in the wilderness, and you'll see some of that played out. But I wanted you to see the original beginning where Jesus comes to the disciples, and he calls them, and he says, follow, and at great cost to themselves, they leave everything, and they follow Jesus. So let's come back to that question. Why did Mark write his gospel the way he did? We're 20 verses in. We got nothing about the birth of Christ. We got two verses on the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Mark is just going really fast with these details. And we're already to Jesus calling his disciples right there by the Sea of Galilee. What I want you to catch, and what I think is really helpful for us to see in these first three stories, there are a lot of similarities between what happens to John the Baptist, what happens to Jesus, and what's going to happen to the disciples in just these first few verses and throughout the rest of the book. And then you and I are also, by correlation, supposed to realize, well, this will be similar for you and I as we decide to follow Jesus Christ, if we decide to follow Jesus Christ. So if you're in your notes and you jump down to your application, that first blank is calling. I want you to see what calling looks like in John the Baptist's life, in Jesus' life, in 
the disciples' life, and then in our life. Notice in verse 2, what happened to John the Baptist? There was a divine voice through the Old Testament prophets that called John into ministry. You see it there in verse 2 and 3? Then come down to verse 11. At Jesus' baptism, there was a divine voice that calls Jesus into ministry at his baptism. And this divine voice of the Father says, This is my beloved Son. And there was a calling on his life. In the, for the disciples, by the time you come to verse 17, there's a divine voice, the voice of the Son, and he calls out to Simon and Andrew, Follow me. So let's now think about you and I. There is a calling for you and I to salvation. Have you come to the point in your life where you have responded to that call? Where you've realized your sin and your need of salvation. You've realized that your sins separate you from a righteous and holy God. And that only through faith and repentance you can have right relationship with God. Jesus is calling you to salvation. To come to him. To follow him. To turn from your sins. And believe in him for salvation. And scripture says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I hope that that is true in your life. But not just a call to salvation. Those of you who are Christians. Now there is this call to follow Jesus Christ, to be his disciple, to be steadfast, to be immovable, to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's the call that's extended to you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want us to be thinking as we go through this week, is that something you're willing to do? Are you all in? Are you going to follow Jesus Christ no matter the cost? But not only have we been called, your second blank, we've been given a commission. I want you to see the commission from John the Baptist, from Jesus, from his followers, and then from you and I as well. Notice then in verse 4, John appears and he's baptizing in the wilderness and he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance. John comes and he preaches. He says, you need to repent. What is it that Jesus does when he shows up in verse 14 and 15? He has a commission as well. He's proclaiming the gospel in verse 14. He's proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus has been tasked to go out and spread a message. As you go through the gospel of Mark, by the time you get to chapter 3, by the time you get to chapter 6, the disciples are given their very own commission as well. They're sent out to do what Jesus has been showing them to do. We're going to look a little bit at that in chapter 6, probably tomorrow night. So what I want you to see is not only have the disciples been called, but they've been tasked with a message to spread the gospel for you and I. We as well have been given a commission. Believers, we here have a responsibility, a task, an assignment. Now, you're here at camp, which is not exactly Jordan Wilderness, but there is something unique about camp. To come away, to separate yourself from some of the normal things of our world, to reinvigorate your love for your Lord and to reignite your passion on on who God is and what his claim is in your life and to stop and to think, he's called me to follow him, taking inventory this week of my life and saying, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I submitted to him as I ought? This week, I want you to think about as an opportunity to reevaluate the commission that you've been given from your Lord and to say, am I following Christ as I should? So here's what I want you to be thinking about just by way of introduction in the week ahead. 
Will you respond to God's word this week? Would you be willing to think on that question? If God reveals things in your life this week that need adjustment, if God reveals sins that needed to be repented of, if God reveals priorities through His Word that need to be realigned, some of it might not all be negative corrections. Some of you might be weary and broken down and you're saying, I, I need encouragement. I need to be reminded of God's love for me. Guess where you're going to get that encouragement? It's going to come from God's Word. And I want you to think... Will you right now be willing to make a commitment where you'll say, God, you show me things from your word and by your grace, if your spirit opens my eyes and softens my heart, I want to respond. I want to follow in faith and obedience. This might come from your time in God's word through your personal devotions. It might come from things that you discover in family devotions as Pastor Dave leads us through this time. As Pastor Cody leads us through the sessions, there will be things that the Holy Spirit speaks to you and says through your word. As we walk through the Gospel of Mark together, would you just make a commitment that here you are, you're not in the wilderness by Jordan, but you are at camp. You've been called to follow Christ. You have an assignment from the Holy Spirit. You've been commissioned to spread the good news of who Jesus Christ is, to live as his disciple, to raise your family in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And would you be willing to commit that as God shows you things this week, you'll respond this way? We're at the point where we're in the beginning of August. There's going to be new school year, new habits, new patterns, and what a great opportunity for you to make adjustments in your spiritual life and to say, yes, God, I, I, I want to I respond to your word because I think it's worth it to go all in and following Christ. That would be my prayer for you, that you would be willing to do that. I want to speak with some of the young people. We've even got like fourth, fifth, and sixth graders here, which is awesome. Teenagers, 20-something college students. It's awesome that your parents bring you to family camp. And I get it that in a crowd this size, for some of you, your parents care more about God at this point than you do. Like, I would plead with you. Jesus is worth it. You may not think it, but he is. And I would plead with you this week to just, by an open heart, just say, God, if you show me things in your word, I'll listen. Give, give the Spirit an opportunity to bring repentance, to bring that change, to bring that life. Some of you uh, maybe aren't straying from the Lord, but you just have those questions of, do I want to follow God like my mom and dad do? I beg you, you as your teachers are teaching you in class, teens as, as you are with Willie and with John, Josh, listen just as God opens his word and speaks to you this week. 20-somethings as we're here together, I would just plead with you to say, listen, Jesus is doing something awesome in the world today, calling to himself a people and creating a new people. And it's something that's worth being in. And perhaps you've come to the place where you've strayed a bit in that. And I would say this is a great opportunity this week to reorient. And so here's what I need you to think about in our last moments together. There's not just a calling. There's not just a commission. But let's stop and look at this third blank. There's a consequence to following Christ. It's very subtle in the passage. 
But it's something we'll look at more detail, especially one of the last nights that we're together on Thursday night. What is the consequence of following Jesus? Did you catch this in verse 14? So we're going to look at the consequence of what happened to John the Baptist, what happened to Jesus, what happened to the disciples, and then it just raises the subtle question of, well, what about us? So in verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus comes into Galilee. So Jesus didn't show up on the scene until John is arrested. Now the word for arrested here, when it says that John was arrested, over and over throughout the rest of the New Testament and throughout the gospel story speaking of Jesus, it's the word for betrayal. It's when Jesus himself was betrayed. So Mark is drawing this subtle analogy. What happens to John the Baptist? He's betrayed and handed over. It doesn't end well for him from a physical standpoint of following Jesus. He loses his life for following Jesus. He's arrested. He's betrayed. Now what happens to Jesus? We know the end of the story at the end of the gospel. Jesus himself is betrayed. He's handed over. He loses his life. Mark doesn't tell us what happens to the disciples who followed Christ, but church history tells us that all of them, except for one, lost their life for following Christ. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if that's what happened to John the Baptist, and that's what happened to Jesus, and that's what happened to the disciples that for many of us there will be a high cost to following Christ. And you still ask the question, will you answer the call to follow Jesus no matter the cost, no matter the suffering involved? By God's grace for many of us here in this nation, it won't come to the actual loss of life. For our brothers and sisters around the world, that's a reality. But for you and I, it's not always the question of will we die for Christ, but Will we live for Christ in the midst of all of our comforts, in the midst of the hardship and the sorrow and the suffering? And some of you have had tremendously difficult years or difficult decades or difficult lives and you say, God, really, is this what it was supposed to be when I was signing up to follow you? And I want you to see that even in the face of that difficulty, it's worth it to follow Christ. We're waiting for the glory that will someday be revealed and that's not yet. Christ had to go through the cross before he got to the glory. And it will be true that way for his followers. We'll look at that in more detail on Thursday night. But I hope that you are encouraged to say, even if it's difficult, I will follow Christ. I'm in no matter what. Would you do that? Would you make that commitment as God opens his word to us this week? Father, we come to you. And we are grateful for your word and the way that you teach us about yourself in it. Lord, we, we know that Jesus is supremely valuable, and yet in our frail, finite human hearts, we cannot grasp the infinite worth of Jesus. But Father, by your Spirit, would you just give us a glimpse this week through your Spirit and through your Word that we would say, yes, Jesus is worth it. I want to follow him. Bring conviction, encouragement, and instruction to your people this week. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.